This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards, and I'm excited today... Because we get to talk with Seth Ewing. Once again, if you don't remember Seth, you can go back a little ways. We've done several episodes together, including Hank Shaw, Swiss Alps hikes, mountain goat hunting, all kinds of things. So go back and check out Seth. You can find him on our website and you can find him in our list. Just search his name. But Seth, welcome to the show. Yeah, glad to be here with you again. It's fun. Yep, it's always good to have you on and I think it's fun to talk about fly fishing uh, with you because I don't really care for fly fishing all that much, and most people know that. But it is something that is a big-time sport, right? There are a lot of people who use that activity throughout the summer, even the fall and spring, and there's a few hardcore people who do it in the winter. But by and large, this is the time of year, right? This is the time to get out that stick, whip it around, and go catch a fish. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a good time. When I was living in Salt Lake City, my favorite time of the year to go fly fishing actually was the winter, um, precisely because I don't like a crowd, and uh, the ice on the bank kept kept the riffraff at home. Um, Super Bowl Sunday was the best day on the river, period. You know, I had the, had the Provo all to myself, practically, so... Um, you definitely the equipment needs are different. This is probably the easiest time of year to get started without having to break the bank for sure. And uh, it's nice to be able to. My favorite places to fly fish all involve running water, cold running water, and when it's nice and hot, that sure does feel good. And it's a it's a great experience. I think for a lot of us, fly fishing can look overwhelming. You you watch people doing it, and it's just like, oh my gosh, it looks really cool. But it can be a little daunting thinking about how do I learn how to do it? But then people start looking at the gear and then they go online and they see thousand plus dollar setups, right? They see all this stuff. And I think it kind of freaks a lot of people out at the beginning. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what can that initial setup look like and kind of where you would start. You know, if if you were to start again today, I know you've been doing it for many years, but if you were going to start again today, what would you recommend and where would you kind of go with things? Yeah, I I don't get asked a ton. Um, most of my fishing friends are more like you, where you you uh, occasionally pick up a fly rod, but it's not you know even one of your top five options. Somehow, it's like I think uh, catching with your hands is probably ranks right above fly fishing. <laughs> um, slight exaggeration, but I yeah, just for it might be helpful for people's background if you're looking for someone who's a purist. Uh, highfalutin type fly angler um, I'm not your guy I started fly fishing when I was probably 10, 11 years old something like that with a $25 eagle claw rod and the reel that I had on it was a total piece of garbage. <laughs> fishing for tiny brook trout like an 8 incher was a monster in a in a stream that was probably only as wide as the city sidewalk most places so that was kind of my introduction to fly fishing and when I fell in love with the sport so my advice is maybe a little bit different than you'd get from 
someone who does fly fishing for a living, I would say the important thing is to kind of have an idea for what you're fishing for and what you're willing to spend before you start getting into those questions. And um, we have that blog post on Radcast Outdoors website that goes into this a little bit. But the idea is if you're going, if your dream is to go after big fish like Northern Pike, you're going to need to spend a little bit more money on your gear to begin with because a low quality like that $25 Eagle Claw just may not be able to handle the punishment that you're going to throw at it. Um, but if you're going for bluegill, you know, people do fish with cane poles that they get at, you know, Walmart for 10 bucks or whatever all the time and are, and can be successful with it. So what I personally would do again, if I had the chance was to buy a fly rod somewhere in the hundred dollar range. And what I've, what I would recommend to people who are brand new to the sport is to look into buying a combo setup because with uh with traditional spin casting gear you can get a combo but there's just your line is one monofilament line usually for most people like pe- people do fish with leaders and different things tied on to the end of their main line but for most people they fish with one main line with fly fishing you have um, backing a main line, a leader, and tippet usually is all part of the setup. You have a rod, the rods come in a bunch of different weights, the reels come in different sizes, and to just stack your odds of getting a system that will work well, I recommend someone buy a combo. Um, shop, shops like Cabela's sell good ones, and I would get one that wasn't the cheapest level, unless I was going for bluegill and just really, or wanted my kids to use it too um but not extravagantly extravagantly expensive either something in the hundred to two hundred dollar range would be really very very adequate for most beginner fly anglers Um, and that is contrary to what a lot of the advice that's out there i just read an article talking about why you shouldn't buy the 150 dollar fly rod my take on it is if you buy a three four hundred dollar fly rod or more as a beginner angler, you're not even going to be able to tell the difference between that and a $50 browning fly rod. It's just not going to make that big a difference to you. And I would recommend learning whether or not you like the sport before dropping big money on it. So obviously, if your budget's bigger, knock yourself out. Yeah, I, I see the guys that occasionally will go out and get that $1,000 Orvis set up. Then they yeah. realize that fly fishing is harder <laughs> and they get really frustrated and then they sell them online because they, they just, they're, they're like, why did I do this? You know, they kind of have a buyer's remorse. Um, to Seth's point, we do have this article. It's a great post, you know, about fly fishing and there's a number of different things, you know, covered in that. But I, th- I want you to go back to another thing and that's the weights of a fly rod. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how weights correlate to the size of freshwater fish, because that that is kind of a big deal. You know, if you're going after that northern pike and you have a four weight, you're in trouble. And so just dive into that just a little bit more and explain how those weights work. Yeah, so it's a little, it's just slightly less intuitive than it is with like your spinning rods. You have light action, ultralight action, medium, heavy, etc. And they're all designed to cast a different weight lure. With fly rods you're not actually using the weight of the fly to pull the line out. You're using the weight of the fly line, the thick fly line to pull the fly along. And so the rod 
um, weight numbers correspond to the thickness and weight of the fly line. And so bigger numbers are thicker, heavier lines. Smaller numbers are smaller lines. And there are a bunch of different varieties, floating and sinking lines. There are a bunch of different uh, different tapers to the line. But that's generally what you're talking about. And so a lot of fly anglers who are looking to use ultralight tackle, they might be using a four or a three weight for trout. That's a very sm- very light. That'd be a really fun rod to go after, say, bluegill with. If you're talking about doing steelhead or salmon or something like that, you're going to be using a rod that's at least a seven weight and probably heavier than that, maybe something like an eight or a nine even. I don't really fish for that size fish very much, so I'm not an expert on that, but I know when I went to buy a fly rod for fishing for northern pike, I wanted to get an eight or a nine weight so that it would be able to handle a heavy enough line to pull the big flies for a pike and also to fight a potentially big fish too, because that's the other other piece of it. Obviously, a skilled angler is going to be able to land a big fish with light tackle, just like in other other types of fishing. But for most most of the people listening, they're probably interested in fly fishing for trout. And what I personally like is a five or six weight fly rod you can go heavier or lighter but that's a good place to start it's kind of a medium thing and it it's a you can fish a lot of different species with kind of that middle of the range that five to six weight if you were going for bass those flies tend to be a little chunkier and a seven weight might be more more in your realm a seven weight i think would be a really fun rod tackle carp with Mm -hmm. um could be a little bit on the light side for big carp but that's that's kind of my broad stroke view of that smaller numbers lighter weight rod bigger numbers heavier more broom like rod there is another thing that was touched on in in the post um you know talking about fly fishing and a lot of people get hung up on what is a good fly to use? Because if you walk into a fly shop, there's about a bajillion of them over in that <laughs> section, right? You look you look at the boxes and there's all different colors, there's sizes. You know, you've got bead-headed ones, ones without. You've got some that are, you know, massive streamers. People don't even know where to begin. And you kind of had an outline of, of six that I think are great because, I mean, I've used a lot of them. I haven't even used all of them, but that I've used most of those in my fly fishing experience. Talk a little bit about how that works, you know, depending on, you know, if you're going after just basic stuff, like we're talking freshwater, we're talking, you know, basic trout, maybe even bluegill. What are what are six go-to flies and, and why would you pick those? Again, with the context being that most people are probably most interested in trout, um, that's where the article goes to. But the principles are probably similar. Like one of the most... Oh, the reason a lot of people like fly fishing is they love the idea of getting to see a fish hit something on the surface. Unfortunately, fish do the majority of their eating under the surface. So what's the most fun to fly fish with and what might be the most exciting thing and what you're going to catch the most fish on might not be the same thing. So one one fly um, that is typical for a whole category of flies is called a woolly bugger. And it doesn't really, a lot of flies try and imitate a particular insect or or thing that might be in the water, like a terrestrial, like a grasshopper that's fallen off the, the grass by the side of the creek or something. 
a woolly bugger doesn't really do that. It imitates a lot of different things, sort of. It might look like a crawdad dashing through the rocks. It might look like a little minnow or something. It's a fly with a long body with feather spun around it so it's kind of it looks kind of uh, like legs sticking out all over the place on it and then it has a marabou tail like a jig like a marabou jig and it just has a lot of action in the water and that will trigger a predatory response from fish who are eating things like crawdads or minnows that sort of thing and so whether you're fishing you know in different sizes that kind of fly streamers are good for triggering a predatory response from fish that are eating fish which works great for trout and it's an underwater fly so that's one that if it's not the woolly bugger something like the woolly bugger should be in any fly angers box the next category of flies and i'm trying to remember which ones i had in the article because i talked to one of my fly fishing buddies from back in utah and had him guess and he had six other flies that would have been excellent choices but some kind of nymph nymphs imitate the underwater life stage of aquatic insects and so that might be a damselfly or dragonfly nymph it might be a mayfly or stonefly those sorts of things i'm the kind of fly angler that i'm not i'm not trying to fool fish that they're looking at a specific bug very often i prefer fly patterns that are more generic and work in a wide variety of situations and so one of my favorite all-purpose nymphs is a prince nymph with a bead head it's got peacock feather on the back so it's got a dark body it's got a little color off the thorax and it's got a, a golden bead usually and it's heavy so it gets down to where the fish are actually living and eating it doesn't look like really much of anything specifically but it looks like a lot of things enough that it's a really effective fly another underwater nymph fly that i really love and think that everyone should have in their box is some kind of stonefly imitation stone flies are one of the chunkier nymphs that we have in most of our western waters they're kind of a high priority target for a lot of bug eating trout because they're big so they get more protein for for the effort and i like one that has a bead head on that as well so that i can get my nymphs close to the the bottom of flowing water it's good to have unweighted varieties too if you're in a shallower or slower current but those are two nymphs that i absolutely would like to have Another fly that I love because catching them on the surface is absolutely one of the best ways to go if you can, if they're willing to hit. It's something that imitates either a big stone fly or a grasshopper or something like that. And so I love the irresistible. It's tied with a um, hair wing, so it's high floating. It's actually floats well enough that where the regulations allow, you can actually tie it uh, underwater fly, a nymph fly off the bend of the hook. So you have your tippet out to your dry fly, which is on the surface where you want the fish to hit. And then you can kind of hedge your bets by dropping one under the water deeper where they live. And that's a great, that's a great combo. So I love that fly because it's easy to see, floats high. The elk caracatus imitates caddis flies. It also sits relatively high in the, in the water so you can see it. That's one of the key things with my fly choices is I want something that is easy for me to fish. Because if I can see the strikes, if I can get that done, or it makes it easier to get the fly deep, that just makes my life easier as a fly fisherman. So what do we got here? That's, uh, I think that's five. What was the other one I said you should have? So you had a stimulator on here. Um, yeah, stimulator. The mosquito. I said irresistible, meaning stimulator. But yeah, uh, the, the mos- an irresistible is another caddis fly, actually, with a spun elk hair body, and it's 
it's dynamite, so that's why it left to mind. Yeah, and you had mosquito on here, which is a deadly one as well. Yeah, I mean, if you're being eaten alive by mosquitoes, it just makes sense to, you know, it does look like a mosquito enough, but it also looks like a bunch of little mayflies. I've just found it to be a really effective dry fly, and I like those in a, a smaller fly, something like a size 16 is really good. I've found in a lot of Western waters. For what it's worth, me being, not being a fly angler, I think my two favorite are the prince nymph and the woolly bugger, because you can catch fish anywhere, any time of year, pretty much. You know, I've caught everything from golden trout to carp. I mean, it, they, they they catch everything, and so it is kind of a it's kind of interesting for just talking through this because you hear match the hatch all the time i mean fly anglers are always like gotta match the hatch gotta do this gotta do that well it can be super effective right it can really up your game if you're in the middle of a mayfly hatch and you're throwing a mayfly it's probably going to help quite a bit but there's a lot of times in the year like right now there's a lot of stuff that are so-called the hatch you know there's they've got a lot of things on the menu so then it's like well what's going to increase my odds of having a really good day you know and how do i want to approach them maybe it is a dry because that's all i care about guys there's times i fish top water lures just because that's what i want to do it's not because that's Mm -hmm. what's going to catch the most fish it's (laughs) because that's how i want to catch them Um, yeah exactly but i mean flies are a big piece of your kit when you're getting started but there's a whole lot of other things you better have with you if you're going to go fly fishing you talk a little bit about this but you know a net and pliers and some of those other things talk through just some of your other kit that you better have with you well it's kind of funny it's like it's like a lot of things you have the stuff that you're just not fly fishing if you don't have it and then you've got the stuff that's really nice to have um so i have fly fish with very minimal equipment and you can do it with just you know you've got your rod and reel your line some flies and you're you're in business particularly if you're doing catch and release um you can get away with that however um one of the things that makes your life a lot easier even if you don't have tons of boxes of flies it's just a fly fishing vest i was talking to one of the guys that i fly fished with when i was living in utah and he's been trying different different bags that like hang over one shoulder and backpacks and whatnot and he was just telling me i can't beat the old-fashioned fly vest and i agree with him it's like even if it's just so you can throw a sandwich in the back of the there's usually a pouch on your back and like throwing a sandwich or i put throw a water bottle back there just having that where i'm hands-free i don't have stuff that i'm trying to cart down the bank because unlike a lot of fishing like if you're not in a boat or if you're not I tend to be moving. And so having it where I'm not picking up and putting down and like losing my stuff, yard sailing along the bank, my favorite kind of fly fishing, I'm going to be working my way upstream up a river and I don't want to be putting my stuff down and picking it up and losing it. So a fly vest is really, really a great piece of kit to add. Probably the next thing after that, honestly, is a decent pair of pliers or hemostats or something to remove hooks from the fish in a like particularly trout don't like being roughly handled and if you can get a tool that allows you to just reverse that hook out and release that fish especially if you end up fishing with a tiny fly it's hard to that fish is wanting to thrash around and you're trying to get your fingers on a tiny tiny little hook like a pair of pliers it doesn't have to be anything fancy there's lots of dedicated stuff for fly anglers it all it pretty much all works just find something 
to uh, grab a hold of the hook and pull it out a pair of pliers is great. If you want to fish dry flies, those are the ones that sit on top of the surface. I think you don't want to go out on the water without something called gink. Um, there are a number of different products on the market that all help your fly stay on top of the surface. Some of them are powders that suck the water out of the fly. Gink just happens to be my favorite. They're not sponsors of the, of the podcast or of <laughs> me or anything like that. It's just lots of us use it. You'll find it on lots of anglers, persons in their fly vests because the stuff works really well. Um, so that would be a personal recommend for me. One of the things I would recommend that's maybe a little bit of a sneaky one is a lot of fly anglers think that they need to buy stuff that's made specifically for fly fishing. I think one of the biggest things for me in my angling is to not buy tippet material. That's the very last part of your fly line that attaches to the fly. Don't buy fly fishing made tippet. I've found almost all of it breaks super easy. Trilene, just regular old redneck trilene is so much better. Oh, come on it's now. So You're much... calling it redneck trilene? I'm just teasing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's for the fly fisher. Yeah, that's true. That's fly true. fisher men and women <laughs> in your audience who probably who may look down upon trilene as beneath them, but the stuff's so much better than anything I've tried mm-hmm. um, that has a fly fishing company's name on it. It's just... I lose less flies. That makes me happier. I lose less fish. There are less. There are fewer fish in the river with one of my flies stuck in their nose. Um, I, I always take trilene with me. It almost feels like I should just go home if I don't. If I just have something else with me. So again, not sponsoring me, but if you're if you're wanting to. And they're not sponsoring <laughs> me either. But <clears throat> when I'm fishing, um, when I'm fishing below you know, freezing temperatures and I have monofilament on my line, I'm using trialing too. And the reason I use it is similar. It's fairly, it's fairly tough and durable, but it also casts really well. So yeah, I, yeah. I like trialing just fine. So it's, I, I think it's great stuff. There are a number of other things that are nice to have. A net is particularly if, if you're starting to get into a better class size of fish, and that is just a great way to make sure that those fish are handled gently and returned to the water. I think we're probably all on the same page about now about the, the nets that have the silicone type webbing. If you find one of those nets with the old nylon string at a garage sale or something, just let it go. I had one and I ended up selling it at a garage sale myself because my flies were constantly tangled in it fish would throw the hook and I'd spend all my time trying to retrieve my hooks out of the net instead of fishing. But those silicone nets seem to be really gentle on the fish and they don't trap your flies forever. So one of those, I bet that's part of my kit. If you're doing a lot of nymph fishing below the surface, picking up some kind of, we don't call them bobbers within the fly fishing community, but they're <laughs> bobbers of various sorts. The one I like utilize is a is made by a company in New Zealand where it, it puts a little piece of silicone, uh, not silicone, uh, surgical tubing on the line and forms a loop that you can put a wool on and it slides up and down the line. But it's it's a way to let you see when a fish bites your fly underwater where you don't see it. It gives you an indication that something's happening under the water much quicker, but they come in different varieties. Some of them are very bobber-like. Some of them are little pieces of adhesive foam that pinch onto your line. But if you're going to be fishing nymphs, that's a really helpful thing. And I would, I would recommend picking up something like that if someone's going to be fishing nymphs. And you should be because 
that's where the that's where the trout are eating there you go 80 percent of the time yeah a lot of people call those you know you'll hear people call them a strike indicator and yes. so yes i i didn't call them that but i suppose if you're looking to buy them that's what you're gonna you don't want to walk into your fly shop and say i want some fly fishing bobbers that won't go <laughs> strike indicator is the trick i think you should go in and say i need some fly fishing bobbers I, I just just to see what kind of reaction you get you might get a pretty good one <laughs> strike indicator is important to seth's point because you may not see the fish pick it up i was watching a a fishing show that i really enjoy and seth enjoys it too it's called 39 hours and it's put out by uncut angling and aaron weave is on that and he's in this competition he's trying to catch a buffalo and for those of you don't know what a buffalo is it's not the big furry thing in yellowstone that gores people well that's a buffalo too but um no it's a fish that is kind of similar to a carp in a lot of ways it's in that sucker family and uh anyway it's native to the north and so they're up in canada and if he didn't have his strike indicator on his spline line fishing a woolly bugger to catch this this fish he would have never known he had the bite because he was saying it was just sucking it in and spitting it back out and so you'll have that happen a lot with trout trout do it all the time <laughs> um, but also with maybe if you're really wanting to go after big heavy duty fish and you're fishing carp they'll do the same thing so you have to know when that fish has actually inhaled that so that you can set the hook quickly it really ups your odds but yeah the strike indicator is a big deal that's for sure yeah it's it functions the same way as a bobber it's doing the same the same job it just doesn't weigh as much because you don't want to add a bunch of weight to your line you can in most stream fishing situations watch the tip of your floating fly line and get a lot of the same thing if you're out of strike indicators or don't have them you can you can do a lot of the same things without it but the advantage of the strike indicator is just like the dry flies i mentioned the reason i like them is they ride high in the water and you can see them the when you're going through riffle disturbed water and if you've got a sneakier color fly line like a light green instead of something like bright orange or something it can be hard to see the tip of your fly line and if you can react quickly, just like with every other kind of fishing, you don't have all day. The fish is going to realize something's up, that what they just took into their mouth isn't food and, and get rid of it. So you don't have a lot of time to set the hook. You want to stack the odds in your favor. So strike indicators are, are really nice. Yeah, and the one I use is chartreuse colored because yep. I know I can see it. I see a lot of guys use a bright, you know, fluorescent pink or orange. Um, sometimes people have just white, which is fine. Um, but yeah, it is really important. It's whatever you're comfortable with and you can see well. That's really kind of the idea. Use that on there, and yeah, you'll you'll catch a lot more fish that way because you'll notice that it takes off. You know, it might jerk real fast going one way and then you can tighten up your fly line and it might even just stop it's moving yep. in the current and it just stops in a way that in and you learn there's kind of a sixth sense for it and it takes time and practice to learn what's the bottom and what's what's potentially more fishy but with practice you can do that speaking of seeing things that that does bring up another piece of fishing gear that i think is maybe so obvious to a lot of us that you almost forget to mention it but polarized sunglasses are are i've fished a lot without them i last summer i think it was or two summers ago i was fishing without them and got hit with a stick in the eye and that illustrates that it's not just so that you can see the fish and see your fly and see your fly line they're great because they protect your eyes 
especially if it's a windy day or you're just learning to cast, like you don't end up with a hook in your eye. Um, but the primary feature is part of what makes fly fishing so fun is when you can either see the fish or see your fly and you're interacting with it in that way. And polarized sunglasses are you know, an obvious game changer, but we should throw it out there because it absolutely is something you should. If you've got a pair of polarized sunglasses for other things, go ahead and take them fly fishing too. They're they're really an important piece of your of your outfit. Yeah, we've talked about on the podcast, David talks about spot and stock hunting. Really what we're talking about is spot and stock fishing at that point, right? You're, you're able mm-hmm. to see the fish and kind of where they're pulled up and schooled up and you can target them. And it really helps you in presentation. Mm-hmm. So maybe dive into that too and how that matters because if you can see where they're at, it's going to affect where you're going to cast. Yeah, it, this is where a podcast is a pretty tough assignment as far as um, this is a very visual a very visual thing. And people who I'm more, I do more of my fly fishing in water with current. A lot of the same principles apply to flat water as well. Um, you've had podcasts with talking about bass fishing, things where it's talking about structure and ambush points and all of that sort of thing is true in the fly fishing world, just the same because the fish is the same, right? They're still still having the predatory feeding instinct that you're trying to leverage to catch them. But in current especially, what part of what makes fly fishing challenging is that the currents want to do unnatural things, make your fly look like it's not natural. It want, current tends to make it look like your fly is tied to a long string and being drugged down river for some reason. <laughs> Imagine um, that. But what you're trying to do as a fly angler is make it look like a natural thing that's just sitting and going in the current, whether that's on the surface or underneath. Due to the nature of currents, too, um, the river is flowing more slowly on the bottom than it is at the surface. So there's a gradient in speed that the water is coming down. And so what you're trying to do as a fly angler is, especially if you're, you're trying to mitigate the different pulls of the current and also you're trying to identify where the fish are so those are kind of the elements that you're trying to overcome in presenting so the first thing probably actually goes down to you need to learn where the fish are if that's not something you're already familiar with obviously anglers who aren't using a fly tackle utilize the same principles but in a river fish are lazy is one way to think of it they're going to be pointing upstream waiting for the current to bring food to them in a lot of situations and what they're going to do is they're going to try and find a place where they can use burn as few calories as possible while having immediate access to everything the river is bringing them and so that's why they like to hang out behind rocks or on eddy lines places where the current is slowing down because they can sit there just barely moving their fins And when they see something coming down, whether it's a big fat grasshopper or it's a minnow that got startled and got swept down the stream or mayflies or nymphs, whatever, it's going to come down the current and they're going to be able to just flick their fins, go out into the current, open their mouth and then go back to that safe spot. So as you learn to identify where the fish are, then what you're going to want to do is learn how to position yourself where you don't have currents that are ruining the presentation of your fly you're going to want to drop a fly upstream i've there are people who fish downstream most of our water around here is so clear that if you in it i've primarily fished small water that if you do it that way you're going to spook all the fish bigger water you can get away with more casting either cross 
current or even downstream and do great. Um, most of the water I fish, you're primarily fishing upriver because that's the way the fish are looking and they have excellent vision. So you're sneaking up on them and trying to drop your fly in a place where the current will take it to that leading fish without being drug in a in an unnatural way. Pretty difficult to talk about on a podcast. I will reference, uh, which isn't an excuse for my lack of good explaining, <laughs> but I will recommend a resource that was really revolutionary for me. There is a book called Prospecting for Trout that Orvis published, and it is a really excellent resource for understanding the way that trout in and other predatory species too, but it's it's very trout focused, but the principles apply to smallmouth and current and that kind of thing too. Um, it does a great job explaining how the fish behave and what they're doing and how you as a flying angler need to present your flies in order to be successful. Yeah, no, that's really good. Something I was gonna talk a little bit more about is, you know, you talked about moving water most of my fly fishing has been on moving water, but then again, I've done some for some of the bigger species, right? So like the largemouth bass and tiger muskies and whatnot. And uh, one of the things I've noticed, you know, you talked about ambush points and kind of pinch points and funnel points, right? Where right. you have big predators sitting and they're waiting. And <laughs> same kind of thing. They're trying not to use a, a ton of effort to get their food, but they also want to set themselves up in a, in a funnel type situation where the food comes to them. One thing that I watched Danny do with a fly rod, which was pretty cool is, you know, he was able to position himself again. He was mostly wade fishing and that taught me a lot <laughs> just watching him do it, but he would wade fish and he would get kind of parallel to the shore. Mm-hmm. And these fish are sitting like right on the edge, watching for stuff that come like out of the reeds or out of the trees, depending on what's along that shoreline, he would present a massive fly <laughs> and just mm-hmm. kind of start stripping down and he would he would mix it up sometimes he would be stripping like a foot foot and a half at a time moving it really fast sometimes he'd just be doing really small pieces of of line just stripping really small sections like four to six inches probably varying the pause in between strips as well exactly so he's trying to imitate that that creature whatever you know that, those giant streamers whatever you're trying to make them look like whether that's a, a perch or what a muskrat or whatever yeah <laughs> something you know it was kind of cool to watch him do that then apply it and catch some nice largemouth that way mm-hmm. but the predatory part of a fish is kind of what's cool to trigger and in fly fishing it's no different than if you're spin fishing you know using a bait caster the whole idea is when you're presenting that bait you want to do it in a way that does look natural but also triggers fish right sometimes it's playing keep away from them especially with pike and bass if if they're hot and they want to get after something they will and one of the best things you can do is really start stripping line they're going to charge out and grab it so i just thought it was kind of cool to talk about that in addition to the current because you know the seams of the river where i live as a spin fisherman you know i'm 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 really trying to work where that fast water comes to you know kind of calmer water fishing upstream fishing crossways with spin fishing gear it's a lot easier because i can streamer fishing across the current and swinging a streamer on a tight line is a deadly is a deadly way of catching fish too in fact in some fly fishing circular circles considered cheating to use a streamer which i i don't i don't uh, buy into that sort of nonsense (laughs) myself i'd rather catch fish Uh, yeah to me it's all about you know how is it cheating if you're 
you know, getting them to hit your presentation. I think that's kind of a, a good thing and that's what you're there for. But that's just me. I like to catch fish. You were talking about fishing on Super Bowl Sunday and, yeah. you know, it tends to be, I'm I'm one of those people who I'm fishing for these bigger trout and, and you can read my blog on catching bigger trout, but like there's a lot of different times where I'm, I'm fishing purposely when I know other people are tied up because I don't want to have to deal with the crowds and I hate to give that secret out over over my podcast but but really that can be one of the best times to go last year i think i sent you pictures of some really nice brown trout i caught on the super bowl but it really is about getting out there and and just kind of getting away from the crowd and enjoying yourself and that's why i think a lot of people have gravitated towards fly fishing is it's a challenge it's a good excuse to get out on the river and ultimately it's 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 one of the more challenging ways to catch a fish, but also one of the more fun ways. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to overstate the challenge. There are definitely situations where <laughs> we were fishing that day um, with the green sunfish where we couldn't see anyone else catching fish. But because the the particular slow and small presentation of a fly, I was having no trouble catching them, even though, you know, so it's certain circumstances, it's, it's not as challenging, like short cast hungry fish that particularly want something that looks buggy. Um, it can be really easy or even like some of the fishing we did for golden trout. I think the fact that a fly rod is nine feet long is just a huge, because we weren't casting much more than nine feet. I was, it, in fact, to call it casting probably wouldn't even be totally accurate all the time. It was more just like lifting and dropping the fly down with the little stick, you know, and it, there are times where it's easier, but I would say for people considering fly fishing, it's worth knowing off the top that it's a little bit like the difference between shooting big game with a muzzle loader and with a rifle. It's probably not as extreme as the difference between like hunting with traditional archery equipment and rifle hunting, but there are things that that analogy holds true. With fly fishing, you're going to have to practice your casting more than you would just to be barely competent enough to get fish. Like obviously practice matters in all types of fishing, but with fly fishing, you're going to have to spend some time and I would say practice in the yard, not on the water, so you don't get frustrated. And practice learning how to roll cast, learning how to do a normal fly cast before you go out. And then there are just going to be situations where it's not the best place to fly fish. We were on um, a lake trying to catch grayling, and the wind was howling straight in our faces. And I could not cast out to where the grayling were and get down to the depth that we needed, whereas a spinner could get there. And so I put my fly rod down and bummed your you're spinning rod off you and caught myself a grayling <laughs> a um, beautiful one too yeah and no shame in that as far as i'm concerned and that you were talking about some of your spots where you're watching fly anglers who are just not being able to get to the depth and the speed of current um that you are with your tugston head jig or that sort of thing so there are, there are circumstances but i will say like the the beauty of it it is a really fun don't let the challenge throw you off and say like, oh, I'm not interested in that because there's something about, I don't think there's a funner way to catch small fish, which maybe is not a huge advertisement on this particular podcast, but I don't <laughs> think there's any more entertaining way to catch bluegill or stuff like that. Little trout and beautiful little mountain streams, beaver ponds. There's just not, there's not a more entertaining way to catch them than with a fly rod and a little terrestrial fly, in my opinion. Um, but there's a poetry to the, once you master that skill, there's a satisfaction that comes from having a fly cast that works. And there is a certain poetry to it when you learn how to 
or satisfaction when you've got a nine foot rod and you're in a tunnel of trees and you still somehow manage to finagle a fly into the little pool and catch a fish. It's just, it's a special, it's a special thing. And I don't know if you can dig out that, uh, that video of me on a float tube catching <laughs> brook trout at an undisclosed location. <laughs> but, you know, I probably could have caught, I could have caught easily as many fish, if not more fish, fishing with other gear, but the fly rod was just fun. And it was worth it to me to do it that way, even though I knew I might not catch as many fish. However, I also backed it. I packed in backup gear just in case you guys were out fishing me 10 to 1. I was going to. I wasn't going to stand for that. And it so was, I had another rod with me. It was fun watching Seth get towed around by a big brook trout. That was pretty cool. Um, he's out in the middle on a float tube. And uh, it was, what, a 17, 18-inch brook trout, something like that? And a half? Yeah, and it was... <laughs> It was just taking him all over the place, and he's in this float tube, just spinning in circles, just ha- hooting and hollering in the mountains, just having a great time. It was it was awesome. That was one of my highlights of my life, really, of fishing. <laughs> like watching you get towed around by a brook trout was pretty cool. No, I mean it's it's great to talk about fly fishing because that is one of the biggest drivers of angling right a lot of people like the fly fishing aspect so it's always fun to talk about it and if more people get involved that's great you know learn how to do it it's always good to challenge yourself to do something new and different that's one of the things that keeps it interesting for me is trying new things you know if i just went out and fished one species all the time the same way i would go crazy just because it gets boring after a while it's like oh well i've been there done that find ways to challenge yourself that's always a big thing in angling and it keeps it interesting for you maybe you want to teach your kids you know this blog is a great resource for that so go to our website radcastoutdoors.com click on the blog you can pull this up there's a beautiful uh, golden trout is kind of like the cover picture that seth caught up in the mountains um so you'll be able to find it It's, it's not that hard to find but it's got a lot of great tips so reference that material it'll at least get you started yeah and i think like people could probably ask questions and things on like the facebook page or something too right and um you know that's part of what being obviously you're not going to fit you're not going to do more than scratch the surface in in a blog post and there are lots of good resources out there online and and in like books and magazines and different things but you know i know for me like i benefited from people who showed me the ropes and have enjoyed teaching other people and so you know even within the the radcast community like to ask questions and have like you know it's it be intimidating to walk into a fly shop where people know what they're doing and some people are really nice and some people make you feel like oh yeah you really are new to this and you should feel like you haven't earned it yet but that's that's not what i'm about in fly fishing so maybe great if people are curious and have other questions like to just ask those questions and like fill in the fill in the details that obviously we can't cover in a in a podcast either now people can comment on the blog post itself they can comment on our socials either way and you know if maybe there's a fly that you're like man i can't believe these guys didn't put this one on there well leave it on there we'd love to hear about it um there's a lot of different great fly presentations as seth said one doesn't make it 
break you, you know, it's, it's good to have a variety and every fly box I've ever seen, there's at least 15 different fly patterns. Well, then you got to start tying your own flies and you'll have things that no one else has. Those are some of my Mm -hmm. favorites actually, but I can't tell you what they are because they, they only exist in my box. And I think we should talk about that at a future date. You know, we can break down some of the cool materials you can use to make flies that people would not expect. Um, There's, there's quite a number of them and including hair jigs. If any of you followed me for long enough, you'll know I use my Bernese Mountain Dogs hair. They're called Molly jigs. Um, You know, it's an eighth ounce VMC Moon Eye jig with some dog hair tied to it, and they catch some monster trout. trout. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you can... We always used rub-a-dog dubbing. That's right. Chesapeake Bay Retriever hair for a lot of different flies. So, yeah, there's definitely some interesting and yet effective materials out there. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to go to the store and buy the real expensive stuff. You can, (laughs) you can procure a lot of it yourself. You know, I'm lucky. I have chickens, I have dogs, (laughs) I can get all kinds of materials and I can make some very interesting things, uh, you know, with my fly tying kit. But Seth as always, man, it's, it's great to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll come up with some more things to come back on here and talk about, but I think beginner fly fishing is a great one. And I hope people go out there and at least give it a shot. Probably got a number of different streams, ponds, you know, little lakes close by that where you could go out and do it, especially right now in the summer. I can tell you largemouth bass are very susceptible to a fly right now, bluegill. So if you're in the Midwest, we have listeners in Ohio, Iowa, Minnesota, Shoot, get a fly rod. You, you can catch panfish all day long. And a panfish on a light fly rod setup is so fun. They fight there hard. So, again, man, thanks for coming on. Any parting words about fly fishing? Nah, just don't be a snob. Don't be a jerk about it. And we'll <laughs> all be happy on the water. Like, I hear about people who, like, have experienced, like, smuggly things from fly fishermen who thought they were entitled to the water, that they were some kind of superior race. And, like, it doesn't have to be that way. And it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be a sport for only the wealthy or 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 snobs like and so many so many of the fly anglers like the people i've known are just not like that so don't let that be a turnoff and uh yeah let's be considerate to each other on the water and it's a great way to great way to experience the outdoors so my my, my thought on it i think yeah my parting word is go get your fly fishing bobbers at your local store i think that's a that's probably the best advice (laughs) i can give you get some bobbers for your fly pole (laughs) no it's been yeah exactly no it's great thanks again for uh coming on the show and again everybody thanks for listening to radcast thanks thanks again for listening to the radcast outdoors podcast we hope that you've enjoyed the show if so please go to apple podcasts spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe share and give us a five-star rating which really helps other people find the show you can find all of our shows recipes giveaways videos and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, Get out there and enjoy the outdoors.